Over the past year, a lot of people have found sanity in new hobbies like puzzles, coloring, knitting, and crocheting. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. On this week's show, we're talking with Felicia Eve. She's the owner of String Thing Studio, a yarn shop and haven for all kinds of crafters located in Brooklyn. She joins us to talk about her journey to a career in crafting, popular pandemic projects, and the diverse community of crafters she's built through her shop. Felicia, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for having me. So you used to work as a podiatrist. Tell us how you switched over to yarn. (laughs) It was a long and stringy path, I will say. Um, I uh, went to podiatry school in Cleveland, Ohio, and um, was there for four years, came here to New York City, actually, to do my residency program in 1994. And I did what was, what was called then at that point in time, a general residency program. So you rotated through all the specialties in the hospital. And then I did a second year, um, 95 to 96, specifically on surgery. So um, in July of 1996, I moved back to Buffalo, uh, my hometown, and began practicing there. Um, I got married in 97 and ended up moving to Washington, D.C., where I practiced between Buffalo and Washington, D.C. for about 10 years. And in that time of of practicing and getting married and having kids, um, I picked knitting back up again. I had learned as a child um, knitting. One great-grandmother taught me how to knit. Another taught me how to crochet. Um, At six or seven, when I learned, it totally felt like punishment. But as an adult, um, I grew to love it. It was a a nice place that I kind of kept coming back to and putting it down. And then I met friends who were also knitters and crafters and, you know, cross-stitchers and crocheters. And they're like, oh, I didn't know you knit too. Like, let's get together and sit and knit. And then that was kind of like when that seed was firmly planted and rooted as far as like, you're a knitter. So various different um, careers and life pathways, I should say. Since then, um, I stopped practicing production, so retired. 16 years ago, when I moved back here to New York City with my um, husband and three small children at the time, they were two, four, and seven. And we didn't want, my husband's job required him to travel a lot internationally. And we just didn't want a nanny to raise our kids. So um, we chose for me to stay home and I stayed home with them and was a full-time stay-at-home mom, which, you know, there were many days that I wish I could go back to podiatry because it would have been a lot less work, you know? (laughs) So, but yeah, and then just, by virtue of the fact that your children's fr- the parents of your children's friends become your friends, met incredible people. You know, when we moved here to New York City, that all children all went to school together. So we had a common um, focus on like making the world a better place, you know, for our kids. And I met two women who worked for um, a nonprofit called Keep a Child Alive, which um, was Alicia Keys' nonprofit. And they did work for HIV and AIDS for women and children in Africa and India. So um, our family used to support the nonprofit just on an annual basis before I got to the point where my older child was going back to school. And I was like, okay, well, I think maybe I can like kind of peel off a little bit of time for just me. I really wanted to have more adult conversations during the day um, as opposed to being at school and, you know, doing all the PTA stuff. And I went to work part-time for that organization and, 
developed a deeper love and passion for not only the cause, but development. Like I went there to do um, database work because I'm a computer, a bit of a computer nerd and I can figure stuff out. And they were moving to this new database and they were like, you know, you'd be great just to have you around whatever you're doing because you kind of like have this different perspective on things. And sure enough, I went in and just asked questions that had never really been asked before. And before I knew it, it was, I went from being part-time to being full-time at the um, nonprofit. And I was there for seven years um, and ultimately left there uh, director of donor relations for the nonprofit. I had established a, um, a travel program for high net worth donors to actually travel to the programs in Africa and India um, to show them the work that we were doing and get a deeper commitment from them. And I loved it. But what I also loved even more was being able to help small organizations that knew they needed financial help, but didn't really have the money for a full development department, right? So I knew what my skill set was and what my strengths were, and I could go in and teach somebody that was eager enough to be able to learn these little tricks to raise quick money for organizations. So I left the nonprofit um, and actually went and got a certificate in fundraising from NYU, did a summer intensive program, and it was intensive because it's basically like an 18-month program in three months. Um, and did consulting for small nonprofits for a period of time. But I found that to be like speed dating. Like you're not really there long enough to get fully enmeshed in the, in the culture of the organization. I could teach them how to throw an, an event to, throw, to raise money. Um, and in that process, the you know, beginning of 2015 um, to the end of 2015, I decided I wanted to do something else. Hadn't quite figured out what that was. And then in October of 2015, my mom passed away unexpectedly. Um, and it really knocked the wind out of me, I will say. Like, um, my goal every day was get up, get my kids dressed and out to school. And, you know, then I would knit and sit on the couch most of the day. You know, and knitting really was part of my grieving process. Um, it kept me from just, you know, probably crying all day long or whatever it is, but there was definitely uh, a medicinal effect that it had on me as far as my process of managing and dealing with the loss that I had at that point. And um, still trying to figure out what I'm going to do. I knew I couldn't stay home. I'm a worker. Like that's just not something that ever settled in my mind. All my kids were older and in school. And a friend of mine, again, the parent of a kid that was a friend of my, <laughs> my son, um, our boys played travel soccer. We were in San Diego at a tournament. And she said to me, you know, I remember somebody, we were having this discussion about what your dream job was. And you described this place that I don't even knit, but I want to come because it just sounds like it would be a good time. You know, so for a split second, it was she and I, she was going to do like the cafe part, which because that was part of the dream of my yarn shop in my head was you were going to be sitting and knitting, you needed to be able to drink and eat a little bit too. So um, that's how we started. We immediately sitting in San Diego on the side of the soccer field, started looking for real estate. Um, and then she was just like, she couldn't do it. Her husband, she and her husband were already invested in another restaurant, which was fine, but I kept on with it. And eventually in February of 2017, signed a lease on Valentine's Day for a space, um, was kind of freaked out because we had gone through this whole process of looking and thought, really thought I was going to be in this one spot, 
had looked at the space that I ultimately ended up in, but it had been a restaurant. It had been a, a Mediterranean restaurant and the inside was the kitchen and they had a tent that they had in the backyard. And you could smell every dish they had ever made in that space when you went in. Like, I was like, there's no way I can bring yarn in here and it not smell like a Greek salad. It just was not going to work. And I didn't want to, I was like, I'm not interested in doing construction stuff. I just want to be able to find a nice space to put some yarn. And I met the landlord totally like was there to do something else, you know, wasn't supposed to meet him, had sent a proposal. And he came in and was like, who are you? And I was like, well, my, the agent said I could be here. Um, I'm just looking to rent the space. He was like, oh, I'm your landlord. That's how he introduced himself. I'm your landlord. And I was like, oh, that's cute. He said that. And we talked and everything. No lease had been signed at that point. And he says, so talk to me about what you want to do. And I walked him through. And the best place about thing about this space was it had a backyard. So like it's a 600 square foot space inside. But when it's warm out, it's 1200 square feet because I have the outside I can use too. So he uh, says, I like, I like what you want to do. I had no idea knitting was that big. My sister's into knitting. When I told her about the prospect of that, she was very excited. He was just like, I'm fine with your proposal. I just want, you know, this change. And I'm like, well, if I give you that, will you do this? He said, yes. And I was a yarn shop owner, like literally freaked out, walking around with the key in my hand, like, what happened? Like, this man doesn't really know me. And my agent was like, it just happens that way sometimes. <laughs> Congratulations, you're a business owner. So it's, um, who knew that my hobby would turn into my career, you know, 16 years later, you know. But it has really turned into as much as of, of a lifestyle and a, an additional family for me at my shop. How has the pandemic impacted the yarn shop? I will say I'm the silver lining of, of that cloud that is COVID because so many people with them being at home, they're looking for something to do with their hands. So there have been so many new crafters born out of COVID, you know, and people and YouTube University, I like to call it like people can't, you know, we couldn't go up into the stores and teaching groups like we used to. So people are like, I'm going on YouTube and I'm gonna learn how to knit. And so for me personally, and I'm, there's a number of yarn shops that didn't make it or just made the decision that they couldn't, they didn't want to invest that money to try to, to, to write it out. They did other things. Um, I had to get creative. Like I was the youngest shop in New York City at the time when it closed and my online presence as in my e-commerce store was, was basically just tickets, you know, for events and gift cards and, you know, that was it. I didn't have a lot of inventory on because I wanted people to come in my shop and buy that inventory. So I had to get creative. I put some stuff up. I was in the process of looking for a new point of sale system and just lots of transition. So I went to social media, you know, Instagram became a way for people to be able to shop with me without really being in the same space with me. And so I started doing virtual appointments, you know, virtual lessons, you know, and, um, virtual help sessions. You know, if somebody just had a question that they needed to do, they could book a 20 minute session with me on Zoom. So Zoom became a regular, you know, part of my daily work. That was my yarn shop, you know. So when we were able to finally open back up in July, when I tell you the people, and I don't know if this has more to do, some to do, I should say, with the fact that I, that I am a physician, a clinician, and, and you assess people when they come in, you kind of meet people where they are and figure out what's going on but you could feel the people so happy to be out of their house and happy to be able to be back with other people. I can't tell you how many people said, you're the first place I have 
been to since March, you know, like I haven't left the, you know, left my house or if I do, it's just for curbside pickup, but I haven't been inside any place, you know, and what we found, and it's just been me and, and Lucy, my one other employee, my one employee that I have, is that people, they would buy, like they were definitely buy because if they had any yarn, they had knit it all up during the pandemic, like there was nothing left. So they had to restock. But the stories of just like, I love the sound of the, like the backyard. I like the fact that there are other people besides me and you in the, in the shop. You know, they really enjoyed it. Even the people, the virtual appointments like I was doing virtual appointments during the regular day and people would say I'd love to hear the ding of the doorbell you know when it opens when people call, or the buzzer when you have to buzz people in or the people chatting behind you it feels like some normalcy right so I was very pleased to be able to provide that that space for people to feel that way and then with the backyard we were one of the few stores that could actually do a class in person because we could be outside and socially distant you know it was a lot fewer people than we would normally have had um in one class we had people in person and we had three people virtually so we had like this whole video thing set up but it was it was just feel good for everybody everybody enjoyed it and they liked as one woman said to me on um it was actually our anniversary is, is june 10th and it was the year I opened, it was Worldwide Knit and Public Day. And so every Worldwide Knit and Public Day, we do, you know, something outside. Well, for 2020, it was like nobody had been out, you know, in June. And so I sit, put a post on Instagram that says, join me in my other backyard, Prospect Park, you know, and let's celebrate Worldwide Knit and Public Day. And first of all, people were like, this is the best idea ever. I was like, I'm not bringing any food. You got to bring your own chair. You got to bring all your own stuff, but we can all sit under just in the same meadow under the same tree and like, you know, kind of hang out. There must've been throughout the day, the course of the day, anywhere from 50 to 60 people that were show, you know, rotating in and out. And this one woman said, who's actually a journalist, she says, I had no idea how much I needed to be close to people to feel human again. Like I just needed to feel human, you know? So it was very touching. There were many moments, particularly some seniors who were brave enough to come out, you know, cause there's a lot of senior citizens that were not going to take any chance whatsoever. And nor would we, would we put them in any jeopardy, you know, like ones who were real dedicated uh, customers. I have their numbers. I check in with them, you know, I, ch I check on them. Do you need anything? You need me to drop something on your stoop? But they were so happy to be able to just come sit in the backyard with their friends and, you know, have a coffee and knit, knit a sock or whatever together. You know, we became like that little, like, okay, I'm going to strength and studio. Me too. You know, you could do originally it was only by appointments that you could come in, but then as things got a little better and it got warmer outside, you could walk in, but it only could be so many people outside, but the backyard really saved us as far as being able to accommodate more people, but still be safe. What kind of pandemic projects have you found to be most popular? Ah, the scarf. The scarf is the simple, it's the easiest, um, chunky, bulky yarn, you know, thick, big, chunky needles, because it's instant gratification, right? Like, you know, you, we all love a good sweater, you know, with the thin yarn and it's all beautiful. But if you are a new knitter, you need to know I got this and I can wear this in a couple of days. And it's the scarf, you know, people, I ask people, are you a single or a double looper? The question is, how many of these do I need to make a scarf? And I go, well, is it for you? And they go, yes. Like, are you a single or a double looper? And they're like, what, do you wrap your scarf once or do you wrap it two times, you know, and then tuck it in? And they're like, 
oh, because then that figures out how, how long you have to make it. So we just started developing, we put together kits. We had books that would like, with beginner books that would progress people through projects to increase their technique. And, you know, we just had the standard questions, like, because then we could easily direct people to it. But we couldn't keep the chunky yarn in. Like, they would, people just come in and buy like six at a time. Like, I'm making Christmas presents. I'm, I'm making myself a hat, you know, a scarf collection. Like, they just come in and scooping it up, you know? Um, so yeah, it was scarves. And then when people got sick of scarves, we would do cowls, which is basically a scarf sewn together. So you can, you know, pop it over your head and then people would progress the hats. Talk to me about your inventory. How do you choose the yarn and supplies that you offer in your shop? It is a very personal process. <laughs> uh, like people go, Oh my God, I love your yarn. And I'm like, I do too. Like I literally pick out every single piece and the best advice I ever got before I opened the shop was don't just pick yarn that you like because everybody's not going to like the yarn that you like, you know, really remember that you're shopping for other people to come in and buy your yarn, which was the best advice because if it were just stuff that I like, we would never have any cotton and we would have no mohair in my yarn shop <laughs> because I thought both of them were awful. I have a completely different appreciation for both and have both in my own personal stash now, but we have, um, there are small indie dyers that I buy yarn from. There are smaller um, dye houses that I also buy from in Rhode Island and you know Massachusetts and, and stuff like that. And then there's bigger distributors. There's one here in Long Island, another one in Massachusetts and California. Um, but we have reps that would that would come and show you their wares and new colors and stuff like that. It's like the old. I, I kind of imagine it as like um vacuum cleaner sales were like back in the day that's how that's how reps have to do yarn sales because it's a tactile business like you have to like the touch of it the color has to be enticing to you you know um how much it is you need and then you have to learn your clientele like what they're gonna buy you know what's most popular and seasonal you know knitting is people think nobody knits in the summertime but they actually do they just use cotton you know they use cotton they use linen they use hemp you know, they use all these silk, all these other different things that people don't think of as yarn because it's not wooly, but you can make yarn out of a t-shirt. You know, like we do, people do recycle. They take old t-shirts and cut them up into strips and knit with them, you know? So it really is a year round sport, I like to say. What about your clientele? How diverse is the community of crafters? It is incredibly diverse. And, and some of that is because in general, the field is far more diverse than people would think, right? So um, as a woman of color, there are crafting black, brown women all over the world and always have been, right? But the reality is, is that our representation in the fiber industry has not represented the true number of us that are crafters, right? So the affinity that my store has for crafters of color it represents a lot more than just another cool yarn shop. You know, people walk in and say, I, oh, wow, I had no idea. And it's, and it's not even just people of color, like young white girls, like a woman-owned business. They're like, is this your shop? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, this is awesome. Like from day one, they're like, this is cool taking pictures because it's not set up like your typical yarn shop. You know, like we had a big table in the back so you could sit. We have husband chairs, you know, with newspapers and drinks. So you could sit down and not bother your wife if you decided to come to the yarn shop with her. But from little kids, we used to have an after school program in the regular in the regular days, you know, um, once a week. We had the, the cutest little 
knitting circle of middle school girls that you could ever imagine. And they were from different schools. They didn't know each other. And they were really good knitters, like come in. They just picked it up so fast. And we were like, okay, try this. And what would stymie somebody our age? Because we we're like, oh, I should know this. Kids approach it completely different. They, I don't have any idea. So they just soak it up like a sponge and love it. I mean, I still have parents that come back to me and go, my kid loved it. Boys and girls, not even just a girl thing. Boys and girls were fully into it. I think girls look at it like, I can't wait to make a sock or a, a bunny or something like that. And boys are like, how do I make this square? Like, how do I make this flat piece of fabric three-dimensional? Like, it's a very different approach. And we love it because we can, we can make it three-dimensional, right? But it's not your grandmother's knitting. It's not, it's not just your grandmother. It's you and your grandmother. You know, it's, it's your grandmother and your auntie and, you know, your niece. You all come into the shop looking for a project because you're all going to go home and watch something on Netflix or some movie or something, and you're going to knit together or craft together. What would you say are the biggest stumbling blocks for people who are intimidated to try knitting? What gets in their way? What do you work to get them over? Mm. I, like I said earlier, kids are rarely a problem. It's adults. And, and the whole thing is, is like, I should be able to get this. Like, I should be able to, I should be able to figure this out. And it's just like, my thing to them is put yourself, think of yourself as a child, like remove all of that preconceived notion that you should be able to get this in a snap and they, or you do a few rows and they were like, this is awful. Like there's holes and there's such something like, it's supposed to be like, you've been doing this all of 45 minutes. Like it's supposed to be awful. It's supposed to look like that. It has to look that like that for you to appreciate when it looks really nice, you know, like. So embrace that ugly part, like that wonkiness, that hole, well, you can call it, it's not a mistake, call it a design element. Like I intentionally did that hole. <laughs> you know, like you start with 10 stitches and end up with 16. You're a genius. You learn how to increase without me even telling you how to do it. It's all in how you present it. Like that's, I think that's with anything in life, right? Um, you can look at it as like, she's a lost cause. Like I can't help her. Or, you know, it's just like, okay, let's go back and see what you did wrong. Because part of learning how to knit properly is learning how to fix your mistakes, right? So if you can't fix your mistakes, you're never going to, it's always going to look wrong. You're always going to be running to somebody to fix it for you. It's such a metaphor for life, right? Like, like when you raise kids, like you got to, sometimes you got to let them fall down and figure out how to get up and fix it again, right? Same thing with knitting, you know, and it's having a soft place to land, you know, for your own child issue, issue as a parent, you know. But in, in these crafting places, for me, at least in our shop, it's us. You know, it's us saying, it's not a stupid question at all. Like, I didn't know that before I asked it or figured it out on my own. So why would you expect that that would be something that you would automatically do? So I think that's the biggest stumbling block. Like, think of yourself as when you were a kid and everything was amazing and all the questions. Ask them, you know, look it up. You know, I don't know everything, but I'm certainly willing to look it up. And what I do know, I'm more than happy to share. Do you remember the first thing that you made, Felicia? Yes, I do. In fact, I still have it. <laughs> what is it? I have both of them. It was um, a felted, when I really got into knitting, it was a felted tote bag. So felting was cool because you basically knit something really big and then you put it in the washing machine and washed it and then it felt it. It shrunk down and became this solid fabric. Then I was fascinated by that. And so I went to the store, I bought the pattern, I bought the yarn. And I made it. And I was like, this is cool. I'm going to make a hat. And I went and bought more yarn and did the same thing in a hat. And what I didn't realize, what you have to learn, is that it's perfect. That type of, of project is wonderful for a bag. 
Um, Cause it's usually really woolly yarn, like really kind of scratchy, but not so much for a hat. You pull all your hair out with that hat. <laughs> But I kept them. It's exactly what I tell my, my new knitters now, my new crafters. It's like, don't, th don't give away that first project. Like, don't throw it away. Don't pull it out. God, no. Don't unravel it. Keep it. You know, like, wherever you memorialize things like that, like, keep that. Keep the tag. Keep the pattern. Like, whatever it was. And then move on to the next thing because it, it does something for you to be able to see your progress. You know, like, your positive, your upward, your upward momentum, um, I think, is important for people to be able to see, to feel some sort of accomplishment, right? So, um, and teaching people how to be process knitters, like you don't always have to be making a project in order to get something out of knitting. You know, that's one of the conversations I had with a woman, um, there was a New York Times article just before Christmas and it talked about how knitting is a mood booster. And we laughed because, you know, it's almost like a different type of language. You know, you need different types of knitting. You need TV knitting, you need talking knitting, you need, t um, you know, you need um, concentrating. When you're concentrating, that's a different type of project, right? Because you're usually quiet, you're by yourself because you're counting something kind of color work, a little more complicated. I enjoy that. Like I enjoy that part of a sweater when it's those beautiful, complicated patterns up top. I love it. The stockinette part bores me to death because it's just regular old knitting at that point, you know, but that part of that sweater is the part I can do while I'm sitting here talking to you on zoom, you know, or I'm at knit night with my friends and I can do that or a car ride, you know, on a car trip, I'm going someplace. I can do that stocking it because it's just knitting. I can engage everybody in the car. You know, the most fascinating thing. I always laugh at people say, this is awesome. I, there's a lady on my train every day on my way to work she knits or she crochets and this one person i remember saying this woman stands up and knits i was like yeah you can stand you can you can do all kinds of, you can sit you can do all kinds of things and it is soothing and meditating it's the clicking of the metal needles it's the warmth of the wooden needle in your hand it's the yarn the way that it flows across your hand it's all of those things and for people who need the calming effect, which is now, right? It is, it is, it is this pandemic, it is COVID, it is, you know, the election. That was a, well, probably one of the bigger days was the, the election night, the returns, and then the day that, the, that we actually could call the election. People were coming in, we were calling them pandemic projects for COVID. And I was like, are we getting election return projects today? And they're like, yes, we need an election return project and a hug, you know? What would your great grandmothers who taught you how to knit think about String Things Studio? They would be blown away. They would totally, not surprised. They wouldn't be surprised because they, they raised me. So they know, they know who I am, but um, they would be incredibly proud, incredibly proud at the idea that, you know, something that they taught me that, you know, they're, they're probably saying, I told you, like, because I was like, why do I have to do this? But now, you know, I can't imagine a day, you know, I, I don't feel correct. I don't feel right unless I spend a day doing a couple rounds on something, some kind of project. They would be very proud. I mean, you know, the idea of a Black woman owning a business, you know, and still being one of probably a handful in the, in the whole country, you know, as far as yarn shops go would probably not shock them, but at the same time, they would be incredibly proud that, you know, their great granddaughter is doing it. You know, I hear my mom's voice all the time, who was not a knitter or crocheter at all. Talk about skipping generations and skip two. Neither she nor my grand her mother were crafters like that, but 
she, her thing was bet on you, you know, like you've always been that kid, whatever you decided you wanted to do, you did it. She was just like, so I'm not worried about you doing whatever you want to do. You just have to decide, you know, what it is. So I opened the yarn shop with the inheritance that I got from my mom. It, it served so many purposes, right? So it was an homage to my great grandmothers who taught me how to craft and kind of planted that seed as a young kid. It was me in the wake of my mother's death findings, as my friend said, you need to find your feet, like you need to find your legs again to get up off that couch and finding something that had been soothing to me. It helped me heal and offering it to other people, you know, in a way that would not necessarily be what they consider the norm. But it also was um, a way for me to honor my mom because she was like that. That's what she demonstrated to, to me and my sister, you know, my mom was 16 going on 17 when she had me, you know, she, by all, all, all intents and purposes, she and I both should have been statistics. She should have never finished high school. I should have never been, you know, done anything with myself. She finished high school. She graduated college. She went to postgraduate school, worked through um, the court system as a, as a court worker. And when my mother passed away, she was a uh, chief clerk for the city court of Buffalo and was the first African-American chief clerk in the state of New York outside of New York City. Like, that's the example that I have, right? So she would be like, you just decided, okay, finally. Like, what is it that you want to do? So I felt like using that money in that way was a wonderful way to honor her memory and her spirit. So I bet on me, and so far it's working. All right, Felicia, what is your website? How can people find out more information? They can find me at stringthingstudio.com. Felicia Eve, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate the welcome. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to Cityscape on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen to Cityscape on Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at WFUV Cityscape to stay up to date between episodes. Thanks so much for listening.